Hi everyone, it's Jamie. It's another scorcher out there, and uh, I'm upstairs in a room without air conditioning, so I'm going to try to make this quick. I think you all know I'm not that good at it. Recently I was honored to have my essay, Itch, 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 included in the valley-based literary journal Meat for Tea. Meat for Tea, and meat is spelled like the food, and tea is spelled like the beverage. And after that, the publisher, editor, founder, Elizabeth McDuffie, and her cohort, Mark Allen Miller, uh, asked me to come on the Meat for Tea podcast. I was oddly reluctant to do so. Uh, I like attention. I said yes immediately, but then pretty much immediately stalled for a couple weeks, maybe more than that. And then when the day came to record, I really wasn't in the mood to do it at all. But Elizabeth immediately made me very much at home on the other side of the interview, which was not a first for me, but the f a first in at least 10 years, and certainly I've never been interviewed at such great length. And it felt very good. It felt very uh, validating in a summer when there's a, uh, I haven't been making this show because I, I've been doing something that is very insecure making, and that is I have been, um, credit to Anne Lamott, writing a shitty first draft of a novel. And said shitty first draft will be done by my birthday, October 17th, by hook or by crook. And it will be shitty, but it will be... It will have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a bunch of pages in between. And then I will start reading them again. And that's all I'm prepared to say about that right now. Except one more thing. It's a COVID road novel. While I'm inclined to talk to you about lots of things, including the recent brouhaha over cancel culture and my feelings about that, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to say thank you again to Elizabeth and Mark, and I look forward to having Elizabeth on 15 minutes once it resumes. And without further ado, here is Jamie Berger on the Meet for Tea cast, uh, at the end of which I read the essay, Itch, Itch, Itch. I hope y'all are doing well, or as well as you can be doing. Take care. That's the record button. Have we started? We have started. So, this is the Meet for Tea cast. It might always start like that. Who knows? Aha, there we go. Hello. Welcome Hello. to episode 19 of the Meet for Tea cast. Season 1, episode 19. The penultimate episode of the season. Then we start season 2. We will, after which that. Which is significant because it's, what, been a year. It has. This is Elizabeth McDuffie. And this is Mark Allen Miller. We are no longer sitting under the giant... Japanese lantern in the gorgeous formal dining room. We have relocated to yet another temporary residence 
right across the street from the palatial one in which we formerly resided. Hey, we get to visit. We get to visit. No, we're we're in a very, um, shall we say, cozy Airbnb. Cozy, is that a word for this? Small? <laughs> Cramped. Yeah, we're going to make the best of it for the next possibly three months. It's cute. It's right across the street from where we were. It's in a lovely neighborhood. That's a great neighborhood. And, and it, is a, it is a nice house. It is a nice it's house. It's a beautiful, stately old house. Our, our host is very gracious. We, we are occupying a corner of it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> this is a corner of a very nice house. But it is ours, and we are landing, hopefully for the last time, until we can get back into our official digs. Knock on wood, fingers crossed. And maybe, maybe we'll be back under the three elephants. In our own home. (sighs) Well, as you all are listening, you will be updated on that, I'm quite sure. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this is an exciting episode. I had a lively, rich conversation with Jamie Berger of 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame with Jamie Berger. It's an amazing podcast. He's had John Hodgman and Simon Rich and George Saunders and Robin Hitchcock. The, the list is just long and impressive. Michael Ian Black. Yeah, a couple times at least I noticed that. That was pretty impressive. And like notables like Monty Belmonte from our area, Tom Papalardo. Yep. Soren Mason Temple. Right, yeah. I mean, it, it's... Who um, comprehensive has had her work on a front cover of Meat for Tea and then years prior to that, a back cover of Meat for Tea. So needless to say, we have a lot in common with Jamie. Yes, and Jamie submitted an essay, which I loved and published in the Episote issue of the magazine, which is the last one for which we had a Cirque. And the essay is called Itch, 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 which is a play on the German for I, Ich, Ich, Ich. And it's about his mom and her her demise, seeing her die of cancer and wrestling with the complicated feelings that come up around seeing someone being in a lot of pain and then watching them die and feeling guilty about being relieved. Mm-hmm. So I remember reading that when I was laying the magazine out and was very moving. I don't, I don't often have time to read every single word as I'm laying out the magazine, but I do remember reading all of that one and kind of going, woo. Super moving. It's also not without humor. It's it's just it's a good read all around. Do we do we have him reading that? Yeah, so Jamie and I have a nice long talk, which is I think, lively and engaging. I hope you listeners do too. And that's followed by Jamie performing a reading from the essay. So lots of good stuff. Didn't he mention something about it was nice to be on the other side of the interview? Yes, because Jamie is himself a podcast host. It was nice for him to be the guest and not the interviewer. So that's what you guys are in for going to be quite something. So anyway, uh, coming up right quick, here comes Elizabeth and Jamie having a great conversation and stay tuned for the whole thing. 
And we'll see you next week. Wait, what do we have in store? Well, I haven't confirmed it yet, but I'm hoping that we're going to have Michael Rothenberg, who spearheaded the entire 100,000 poets, artists, and musicians for change movement and events. So I'll keep you posted, but it looks pretty likely that he's going to be our guest on the final episode of season one. And if not, probably at some point. And if not, we'll probably dig into our Cirque archives. Which, by the way, again, if any of you out there want to hear from any of our Cirque contributors, the musicians, the spoken word, and you you were either at the Cirque and you'd like to hear it again, or you've noticed that they were contributors from seeing posters or whatnot and didn't hear it, please drop us a line. Leave a voice message on Anchor.fm. Voice message would be the best. Be great because if, actually, if you leave a witty voice message, we might just put it on the podcast. Just just leave a voice memo and <laughs> say hi. Say what you like about the Meat for Tea cast. And remember to give us a five star rating in Apple Podcasts. That and helps. That do helps a some. Lot. It moves us up the algorithms in mysterious ways. And the only way it works though, is if there's some writing to go with your review. Anyhow, maybe without further ado. Yeah. Without Let's further ado. Let's jump right in. You guys are going to love this. So here comes Jamie and Elizabeth. So how are you, Jamie? Welcome to the Meet for Tea cast. Uh, thank you. I so am, nice to have you. It's good to be talking to you. I I was just realizing in the past couple of weeks, uh, well, just today I started to get nervous because I'm used to having guests on a podcast, but I, I don't know that I've... I've been a guest on, on local TV shows and once on a on a weird on a show that was, but I I haven't been a guest on anything in a long time. And what what was the I'm, show that you were a guest was, on? Well, I when I lived in San Francisco, I made monologues, I made performance art, and I made two full length cool. pieces that I combined into one evening length show, and I did it in San Francisco for a while, and then I came back to my former home in New York to do it for a month. And the, the theater that I was doing it at had had actually hired a a publicist and had got me a couple things. And one was like a, one of the major networks had a spinoff like daytime talk show family network that was based out in a studio in New Jersey. And they... They picked me up in a limo and took me out to New Jersey, oh. and I sat on a real TV set Fancy, and Jamie. talked about my performance art with, uh, and it's all a very big a blur. And I was a guest for like five minutes, and I love if there were there's a tape somewhere. I know. I was just going to ask about that. I want to see that. So that was my one. Must have been must have been thousands of people, <laughs> three thousand <laughs> people across the globe uh, saw this. Awkward. So this is your your first fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. I for suppose you it was. Yes. Right. That was just five, five of them. Yeah. Five. Well, you yeah. Could, you didn't use them all. No. You, you no. got some coming to you. I hope well, I still do. Of course. Um. You did your podcast. Are doing yes. your podcast, but only yes. more more sporadically. Yes. This year, very sporadically, and since COVID, extremely sporadically. I've I've put up. I've reposted and re-edited some old ones this year, but yeah. I've only had one brand new episode. Uh, and since 
we've all been in lockdown. I've been doing something I haven't done in over a decade, which is writing a lot. I don't know if I've ever written a lot like I've been writing a lot now. Oh, wow. And I, That's I'm exciting. Yeah. I'm going to at least, uh, there's a word that I, that I, that I'm reluctant to use. It's funny because it also starts with an N, but it's a word that, that I, I've never used before because I've, ne- I've never come through and I don't finish things, but it seems that I'm writing a novel. Ooh. I, and, and it's so long at this point that it's, that maybe I should just say it and thus I'll at least have to finish a draft of it. There's, there's the writing superstition that I sort of subscribe to, but at the same time, I'm curious. So I have to ask, but the superstition is, you know, if you, if you talk in too much detail about what your writing project is going to be or where it's going, then having described it, part of your brain feels like you already wrote it and it leads to not writing it. Have you heard that one? I've lived it many, many times. It, it, it's rampant and and, and and it does come true. I've had so many things I'm like, I'm going to write this blah, 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 blah. And then once I've said all that, that's the thing that I don't do. It's yep. weird how it uh, works. Yeah, I, I, yeah it's, it's as if you don't need. So, so I'm trying to be careful about that part. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to be respectful of that. But at the same time, I'm super curious and intrigued. And is is there is there a leeway in in that in that superstition where there's a, a degree to which you can describe that doesn't doom the writing project? Yeah, I I, I think so. It might. I mean, it's it might be doomed to be crappy. But at this point, I think I'm going to continue. So I'll, I'll say this much: that right before lockdown. I was driving back from Albany and my steering started to go out of my car, which has happened once before. So I knew what it was. And I ended up having to get a tow home from North Adams. Uh, I grew up in Albany. My father's still there. And it's all fixed now and it's fine. But it, it started me writing a story. And somehow just about a guy, I, I it seemed like I can only write things that are I can only write with any uh, real feeling things that are first person and that are based on someone that's something like me. So it's it's autofiction, or I guess I've been starting to describe it as something that feels really yucky, but is what it is. It's kind of auto fan fiction in that I kind of like this that. this story of the real experience led to a fictional story, and that fictional story led to while this guy is stuck in this small town at someone's house in the story, waiting for a tow truck and then getting a tow home. Someone starts texting him and it turns out that this person who is uh, an old and troubled friend, a young old friend, a young person, younger person uh, who he's known for a long time uh, is bugging him and texting him because it turns out she uh, is wanting to be driven cross country. And so that's uh, the, the, and it goes from there, and it, so it and began. and the trip starts on March 9th of this year. Oh, that's that's a trip. Yeah, so it's a COVID <laughs> road novel. Oh, that's wild! <laughs> uh, I'm and, excited and, uh, for I, it. 
I've had a very, I've never written and had such discovery before where things are just, you know, the way I've tried to describe them to other people and teachers have described them to me, you know, all my life of letting the novel tell you what's going to happen and who's, who's going to do what and how the character is going to grow. Um, so it's, it's been a lot of fun. I'm trying to treat it again, the way I teach others to, which is, you know, to enjoy the process and try to avoid thinking about product as much as I can. And so far, so good. I think all of us who had any experience teaching in the UMass writing program. Yes, indeed. Under, you know, Peter Albo's guidance have become pretty process oriented by default. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because you had to, definitely. Well, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't... Um, just point out that Meat for Tea would take a look at an excerpt if you felt like you wanted to test the waters in such a manner. I will keep that in mind. It's just a wink, wink, nudge, <laughs> nudge, nothing more I'm than still, that. I'm still a ways <laughs> off. But yes, absolutely. I've always wanted to publish a novel serially, and mm. I published part of a novel that's now out in print, um, but by Jennifer Juno, Uber mm-hmm. Chef USA, which is a hoot. It's hilarious. You can look it up. Cool. Yeah, it's kind of a big satire of Gordon Ramsay and Master Chef. When did that come out? That came out. She sent me my my copy. And wow, has time gotten strange in COVID or has time gotten strange? I think it was just like before we had the fire, actually, like February, maybe. Oh, so recently. Yeah, it's a recent book. But she published the first two chapters in Meat for Tea, which is how I, cool. how I came to be sent a copy. And it was a it was a really cool thing. It was awesome. So I have listened to a fair number of 15 minutes <laughs> episodes. I've always been impressed with the scope and just the overall stellarness of the guests you've gotten on there. It's pretty amazing. I had a, it's funny. I, I feel like I've had a lot of luck, but, but a certain kind of not luck in that the goal originally, it seemed to me that once I had a couple of established people, nobody really asked big questions like how many people actually listen to the show it was just legitimate enough based on those guests for people who are out promoting something to hop on i know a certain number of people you know and that and that that was good i mean i've lived in new york i've lived in san francisco i've been in artistic communities my whole life i'm always very frustrated and annoyed when people say how do you know him and i'm like because i lived in a place with people and not everyone of renown only hangs out with movie stars. Uh, And that's the thing about, I mean, this, this, this Valley, I mean, how do we know Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon? How mm -hmm. do we know Jay Maskus? How do we know Roger Clark Miller? I mean, this, although he lives in Vermont, but there's, there's just rather a wealth of rock stars Yes, you know people because you live places and you get old enough to have known people. 
But the way that I think it hasn't quite been what I want is that I didn't realize the degree to which, you know, the 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 podcast's goal is is it's called Fifteen Minutes, a podcast about fame. It's not a chat show with famous people. Mm-hmm. And as it's gone on, I've opened it up much more where that's got to be something that we touch on, but then we talk about whatever. Towards the beginning, I had a few guests, like my uh, my friend Tim, who I used to work with in, in San Francisco, who are decidedly not famous people, but have thoughts and a relationship to the topic. But as it went on, I hadn't realized how hard it was going to be to get people who I find very interesting, who are averse to fame, to want to go and do something publicly that's talking about fame. I should have thought of that. But so I wish it were more like a 60-40 people who don't want anything to do with the whole rigmarole of getting attention. Right. Yeah. Just like rejecting things. Yes. Yes. I, I feel like the most recent episode with Jesse Thorne, I mean, he mm-hmm. expresses yeah. a pretty complex relationship with fame. Yeah, as does uh, the second time John Hodgman came, the episode before it. It's funny, I don't only have people related. It seems like the last two episodes were two people who are closely related. But Yes, they are. <laughs> John, John and Jesse are very different and very interesting in that they both have achieved a kind of similar level of success and fame, but have totally different relationships to it. I mean, John feels like his is waning and he is sad. And his last book is about that. Whereas Jesse has about as much as he would ever want. And I think would be happy if, if fame weren't a part of the way you make money in it would be happy with less. That was my sense. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. I, I have not read John Hodgman's book. I, I suppose I, I want to. His recent book is, it's really good. The book before it, I mean, I, I, I it's hard to convince people who, like me, didn't find his his first three books the the you know the the fake facts the 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 yarns about fake stories uh, satirical. I didn't they didn't they weren't my kind of books. But then he wrote an incredibly heartfelt memoir called Vacation Land. I, that's I want to read that. I I just think everyone in America should read that book. If you like like David Sedaris, if you like like humorous but really heartfelt and somewhat political um but it's hard i think a lot of people didn't read that book because he's pigeonholed as you know a jokey funny guy who was on the daily show you know and it it was a great book and this book is a follow-up to that and and it's also very good but it's focused on the fame that he rose to that you know when he was on the daily show and the mac guy and the commercials and that waning away as he moves to maine um, and yeah, it's a good book. It, it's a very good book. It's just a vacation land. I think is a great book. What's, what's the name of the more recent one? Um, oh. blank, blank status. Uh, it, it's, it's the airline status that he achieved. That's oh, really, wow. it's so sad that I can't think of what it is. Cause it's so important That's okay. to him. No, in the book, it's like so important. And as his fame is waning, he's trying to achieve the status that, that as he realizes he's not going to be taking as many flights, if he can get to this certain status, he'll have it for a year. Platinum status? Is that the name of the book? Um, 
look at. We I'm can right look it up. Of, I'm in front of the internet. Uh, we can look it up and put it in the show notes too. It's medallion status. Medallion status. Yes, so yes, yes. So uh, your special treatment from the airlines when you have that. Yes, yes. And he did it. He. Oh, I don't want to give it away. It, it, it's it's very hit and miss to the end, whether as his last times going back and forth to L.A., are, are, whether he will accrue the miles. I'll have to read that. I'm right now in the middle of a dense tandem read. I'm reading Emily Wilson's translation of The Odyssey mm. in tandem with Derek Wolcott's Omeros. Mm-hmm to see how they function in dialogue with, with each other. So that's, that's my light summer reading. Yeah, so you're, I'm going to say, you're not, it's not Stephen King. Um, uh, I've been reading a lot of things related to what I'm doing because I'm, I, I, I've had a friend who's a reader, a, a reader as a, a friend, but this book isn't ideal for having a friend read it because uh, – it kind of makes people feel a little weird and icky because the character's too much like me for comfort. <laughs> it's better to have a stranger, so I'm working with one person. It's awkward. <laughs> yeah, who is also giving me readings because I kind of left writing world behind again like 12 years ago. And so developments in this 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 gray area between memoir and fiction and even the concept of what is auto fiction as compared mm-hmm. to memoir or fiction and so she's been giving me stuff to read that relates to that yeah there's yeah i actually did a, a lot of thinking and writing on the the autobiography and memoir and how they can't really be altogether classified as nonfiction because there's just the subjectivity of human experience. Yeah. And there's, you know, this is very individuated way of interpreting what is true. Yeah. And telling what is true, which isn't going to be. Yeah. I I used to be quite a stickler about it and I got really mad at certain people back in the days when like James Fry was exposed. Frey, oh, Fry, yeah, yeah. Because it was an era. I, I feel like if you call something true in memoir, it's given so much more leeway in terms of the quality of writing and the, the quality of the structure because it's true. They're just telling what it's happened. True. So you, you, I don't think anyone, yes, can is objective about their own story. I guess what I hold people to is that they're at least attempting, if they're calling it nonfiction, to hue to what they remember. And when people don't do that and claim it's nonfiction, then I get yeah prickly. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's prickly making, <laughs> to be sure. Now, I, I just like thinking about, uh, there's, there's a book, I think it's called Fictions and Autobiography. I think the author was... John Philip Eakins. I know the last name is Eakins for sure. Mm-hmm. But it just goes deep into the whole theory of autobiography and that everybody in recounting their experience is writing something to, that to some degree is is a fiction. Mm-hmm. 
sometimes I just feel like we should just all maybe novelize our experiences a little bit and just come to terms with the fact that maybe we can't make it completely <laughs> true. Yeah. You know, just find the light, light motifs uh, and find the narrative arc and then you can craft it too. Yeah, I found it. Paul John Eakin, I, I'm, I'm just telling you it because the title is very, and the subtitle are very interesting. Fictions in Autobiography, Studies in the Art of Self-Invention. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read that in grad school. You might have to. Years ago. I, re- I recommend. Yeah, that, that might be one to try to, that might be an interlibrary loan one because I see it for sale for $104.95. What? Holy... I think it's out of print. It's a, it's a it's a Princeton Holy University crap. book. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, it might just be one edition that's hard to find. I think uh, yeah, I well, might okay. I, own I see it. it. No, you can you can buy it for twenty seven fifty on Amazon. I've I've been trying not to shop there, but yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. And COVID, I just I just really don't think I I appreciate making. Jeff Bezos, any richer? Yeah. I'd kind of like him just to do the right thing and give every human in the world half a million and save the planet and be a hero. Yeah. And still be rich? I mean, yeah, and he's he's not doing any of that. Certain other billionaires are doing more of that. Yes. Um, like um, Jack? Jack and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Yes. Um, like him or not, you know, he's he's leaving his kids a fraction. I mean, there he's going to have a billion or two. <laughs> but uh, uh, he doesn't believe in inherited wealth to, for the most part. And uh, I think that's incredibly commendable and hard to do when you get to that position. I'm on Twitter way too much. And but I but I prefer being on, way on Twitter way too much to being on Facebook, which I'm hardly on at all, which is probably why I didn't know about your fire anymore. Oh, uh, that's okay. The extent of hatred that people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos get. It's disproportionate. It, I, I don't know. Someone who has, has $10 million and someone who has $10 billion aren't that different to me. And it's what they do with it that I don't know. I, I, I think the concept of billionaires is is bad. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I'm against it, but it's immoral. It's immoral yeah. to be a billionaire. I mean, in a nutshell. Yeah, but I don't necessarily. I don't spend time hating them like I hate the president. No, just not for at ha- all. If they've done horrible things with the billions, I mean, not that Jeff Bezos is doing good things, dear listener. <laughs> but, but. I just, I just don't, you know. I, I think it's misplaced, and I, I, I'm really tired of all the weird conspiracy theories being directed at Bill Gates. That's just so weird about five G and you know having a microchip vaccinated into you. Right, a, he created COVID to create a vaccine to inject us I with microchips. Mean. You know, people. <laughs> it's some, something people aren't talking about yet that I don't know why is that, you know, 
Trump keeps floating this idea that magically a vaccine is going to occur before the election and save him. It doesn't, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's just going to go away. (laughs) But I kind of feel like if he somehow, you know, held a coup and stayed in office, when the vaccine is ready, a large percentage of his followers don't like vaccines and he's not going to push it on them. Right. Well, it's right. like their body, their are, choice. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like he's saying that now, but then he wouldn't be pushing a vaccine once it was available. Not any more than he pushed masks or social distancing. Mm-hmm. Definitely not. Mm-hmm. No, definitely not. I would be far less active on Facebook. I'm not like super active on there. If it weren't for it being such a useful platform for meat for tea. Yes. Yes. And meet for tea cast and drawing attention to those yes. things and keeping keeping my audience engagement. I was a super user um, before, and then when I when I was a, you know a business owner, it was vital. But what I found since leading up to 2016 and beyond is that so much of it is is just these long comment conversations that with, with with i don't even i don't have the relatives to argue with but i don't have any of those i'm so lucky i don't have a single maga relative or friend i don't um, either i, I feel really really fortunate I people i say hi to in town and when i owned a bar i'm sure i i knew people i would be friendly with but my point is that it's uh i just somehow i only learned this term recently the uh is it the narcissism of small differences? It's the Freudian oh, cool. term of people arguing, uh, people who agree fundamentally arguing and correcting each other all day. It's and exhausting. That's what that's what made me leave. Yeah, on Twitter, I'm 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 I, I I get information quickly. I I I read funny and interesting people. I write to strangers and no one ever looks at what I post. <laughs> um, and so there's no arguments to be had because I am invisible on there, which can be painful at times, but is generally just so much less stressful than Facebook ever was. Do you want to tell the listeners how to follow you on Twitter? Would you uh, like more Twitter yes, followers? Yes. Uh, yeah, I really would. Tell them I how? really would. It's at well, 15. Let's make it happen. I want to make sure I have it right because I, I didn't even think of doing that. <laughs> uh, 15 Mins Jamie B. 15 M I N S Jamie B. Um, or if you Google 15 Minutes Jamie Burger, because yes, I would love to. I've, I've had a couple of guests on the podcast who just had uh, sudden viral fame, and that was fun. Um, one of whom was was Soren. Oh yeah, uh, she did a meat for tea cover some yes. years ago. The Lotus Blossom issue. Yes, uh, she had uh, a video of of the process of making one of her paintings. Um, got reposted by Instagram, and she had millions of views overnight. And so she, huge. And she we and 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 Dave, who shot the video. They talked to me about what that felt like. But I, 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 what I learned from a person who not only doesn't, you know, uh, this woman who's a, a, I guess kind of a writer, but she had a tweet that got a lot of attention and they, it was interviewed by CNN and, and it went viral. But then she talked about how this has happened to her, you know, 
a couple of times over the decades she'd been actively on Twitter, but she uses Twitter more as a tight community. And what she sends out is public, but after that, she says, I'm going to have to be careful to post more things about my dinner and my cat until people get bored and leave who are following me now, who I don't want to bother with. That's such a lot of agency over how to use <laughs> the social media. Yeah. But what I would like is, you know, I, I want a dozen people to interact with things that I tweet and it just doesn't happen. It's just a vacuum. We'll, we'll try you know? to make it less of a vac vacuum. Uh, yeah, and when I talk to people who have the blue check, the famous blue check, they they hint that you don't even you don't see, even see people with, without the blue check. Like you are oh, wow. convenient, yeah, unless you go looking to see them. And it just becomes this cycle of only people in that in group communicating with each other. And so it's it's very it's an odd Yeah, that kind of turns into its own Ouroboros in a way, doesn't it? Yeah. That little yeah. blue check yeah. community. I've been really inactive on Twitter. I did a funny thing. God, when did I start it? Like a year ago? There's there's um a app you can go to, the Data Poetry Generator. Are you familiar with it? Um, I've heard of it. It's fun. You can take any paragraph of writing and filter it through there and end mm -hmm. up with, you know, data. So I made Data Trump 2 because someone already had made a Data Trump, I guess. It's no surprise that someone would have beat me to that. Mm -hmm. And I was taking his tweets and running them through the Data Poetry Generator. Oh. And then posting the results. And it was it was amusing. It was it was wild. But of late, his tweets are so devoid of all logic and reason. It's like someone already put them through the data <laughs> poetry generator. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it was a funny thing to do for a while. And people enjoyed data Trump. But he's, you, you can only strip away logic and reason so much when there isn't any to begin with. Yeah. There are a lot of things so. that he has taken away, like satire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if like Kurt Vonnegut came back from the dead today, he would just be like, oh my God, I'm so screwed. <laughs> you just, you can't, you can't, you can't write this stuff. You can't out absurd this. You really can't. You really can't. <sighs> Did you read Margaret Atwood's latest book? testaments yeah, yeah I, I mean i don't want to sound entirely irreverent but i thought it was a far less successful work mm -hmm. than that handmaid's tale i didn't find the beautiful poetic turns of phrase that i expect from her mm -hmm. and it feels like it was written on the success of the tv show i i don't disagree with any of that but i really enjoyed the book but yeah, I mean, it was I, no handmaid's I, tale but you know i tore through it yeah exactly it was impossible to put down. Mm -hmm. But I feel like almost that couldn't even really function as dystopian future vision or mm -hmm. any level of dark satire because it's just like here we sit mm -hmm. in the mess. Yeah. Yeah. So on. shall we change the subject? God, we, sure, we got let's. 
we got dark there, Jamie. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was wondering, you know, I I find in these last four months, I'm an ex- throughout my life, and I'm an extremely social person. And I guess one of the reasons I've been able to write is that being that social isn't accessible. But when this first started, I was reconnecting with old friends. I was I was having all these Zoom things. And now when I've started to have little social, you know, Anya and I went to a friend's house the other day. Oh, wow. It's almost like I've kicked social. It's like I've, I've kicked it as, a, as an addiction. And now I, I kind of don't even want it back. Oh, wow. That's wild. I get it, though. I'm a little lost because my whole life I've been a very social creature. Yeah, you don't run the VU unless you're social, that's right. for sure. But I yeah. don't know how far back I want to get. There are things that I'm 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 fearing I'll never experience again. And I like a sweaty dance party. I mean, I'm yeah. getting to the age where not many of them happen anymore, but I could still find one. I <laughs> could you imagine a mosh pit right now? Doesn't that seem like the most insane thing in the world? Yeah, but that more than... You know, I'm sorry to all my musician friends, but more than live music, kind of a, a, a big, like a messy, drunken party. Those are I, fun. I'm sad that that, will that ever happen? Not anytime soon. I, yeah. Not, not any Tim soon, especially not with the politicization and polarization yeah. of thinking around common sense, like, masks and vaccines yeah we've seen videos of people partying you know kids you know in minnesota uh-huh. on a lake and then outbreaks um, yeah <laughs> shortly yeah. thereafter yeah i mean will we ever yeah feel safe in a world uh I, i'm also a uh a poker player of a very amateur oh nice level but and and i i like sitting in a poker room playing very low stakes poker. I love the sitting around with nine strangers. I love the the sound of chips, the murmur of the room, the cards, the tactileness of it. Mm. And I don't know if I'll ever be comfortable sharing a deck of cards with nine people again. Nine strangers. Strangers. I know that that's where that's where it goes kind of sketchy these days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some people love their home game. But I've never been a big fan of that. I like playing in a poker tournament with with strangers. That's so cool. Is that a new predilection? Is that recent? No, no old. Oh no, you've been doing that for. I've been and doing I've it on and years. off. I've never had much much of a budget to do it. So every so often I'll get to play. Um, but I I have been a fan since I was a, a kid, and it was on television. And I have a friend who became a very big deal pro and i've gotten to watch her play for you know i've gotten to sit behind her in vegas and watch her play for for gigantic amounts of money and i once online got to know another pro who made it to the final table of the world series of poker main event which is six thousand people and he made it to the last 10 and i went to vegas and watched that's him at the final table and that was so exciting. So I've been up. I I I don't have certain of the abilities that could make someone 
I can only be so good. Uh, I'm not a terrible player, but I'm I'm never going to be a great one. Um, so that's a good reason that I never have spent that much money on it. Uh, so, yeah, that's that sounds prudent. But still, yeah. it sounds so exciting. Did you have that that talented female poker player? Was she on the podcast? Yeah, all? Annie Annie Duke. She was on yep. twice. And now she's retired. Yes, I listened to the, at least the first episode you had her on. I knew that sounded familiar for some reason. Yeah, and she she now like consults and gives talks and and, and is writing her second book on on decision theory, uh, not game theory, but uh, decision making. Um, Interesting. Based on her her poker experience in in terms of everything in life being a wager. And thinking about it in terms of that, um, the the game and Annie's talking to me about it have have changed the way I see the whole world and the way I see why people like that tend to succeed. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I've always had more of a naive, I don't know what, I don't know. I, I haven't made my decisions based on the wagers that they are very well, I think. Mm. I've made them based on emotion or or ethics and not, and not that she wants to discount those things but weighing the possible future outcomes of decisions as if they were bets um and i i i, I doubt Annie will ever hear this but i'm probably butchering what she what she writes about um i kind of hope she does <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll let her know <laughs> yeah um, but yes, so I've I've talked to to her twice for the show. The first one's really great. Yeah, the early episode with Annie I listened Duke. to the first one. Yeah, the second one was when her book came out, and it, we just kind of got in the weeds about her her book. The first episode, she talks about her her life before and after poker, and and being uh, and telling a story for the moth, and meeting the moth people, and oh, that's good stuff. But I don't have the I don't have the math. What? Oh, something. Uh oh. Now something was happening with your voice. Okay, now now it's clear again. It just started to okay. go. Can hardly des- describe it. It kind of goes robot voice for a few seconds. Yeah, and then that's like my technical terminology. <laughs> Married to a sound engineer, and I say goes robot voice. Like uh, yeah. before you got on, uh, I'm pretty sure he said to me. Sometimes it goes robot voice. My my sound of your husband. Yes. Okay, so so I don't think there, I think there, maybe you have that it. maybe that is the technical term. <laughs> Possibly. Do you have a working title for this? You know I don't. Okay, I was just curious if you did. I don't. Maybe that's the other part of that superstition. Maybe it's very strange. Yeah, because you've got the, the the idea sounds fleshed out, and it also sounds like the the book is telling you what it wants to be. It is, and I think you know. I know, I know how it stretches out. Like I'm about halfway through, and I know how it stretches out, and I, I know how at the moment it ends. But by the time I get there, it might be different. It's so interesting to to try the 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 person I'm working with, and any friend who has written entire books. The push that I've never been able to make before. I've started so many things. I've written twenty to fifty pages of so many things in my life. Mm-hmm. This is way beyond that. And part of it is keeping in mind that I'm trying to finish a bad draft. <laughs> you know, this, like I teach, 
a student how to write a paper. Right. This sounds like like you, Annie Lamott shitty you, you first draft. Shitty first right? drafts. You can't be yep. stopping over each sentence in a first draft because you, you just got to get the draft done and then edit that draft and then see if you send it out to someone to read and, and see what happens. I used to tell my students that Ernest Hemingway famously revised each sentence hundreds of times. And then I told them how he ended up. <laughs> That's great advice. That's great advice. That's and great he advice. shot himself in the head. So don't do that. Yep. This, that is one of two lessons that I'm taking from this, this time and this summer in terms of somehow being able to write is staying focused on finishing a bad draft and keeping the word nice. bad firmly in that sentence. But part of it is also that I am a, an ADD person before it was even a term. And I, mm. and I did well enough in school as a kid because I went to school with small classes, you know, and I, I did well in the classes I liked and not in the ones I didn't, that I was never diagnosed. I never went to a doctor. I never was failing anything. I was always within the margins of okay. But as I've gotten older, I did get diagnosed and I learned more and more. But still, all my life, my mother, who, as you might have read in Itch, 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 I struggled with mightily. We, we, she was, we were very close and we fought like dogs and cats. But throughout my life, she would sit me at the kitchen table and say, look at me and pay attention. Mm. Look me in the eye. And if you ever hang out with me, I don't look people in the eye. And if you make me do it, I can't pay attention. And what I've been learning this summer is every single bit of advice about writers is, is, is not whether to do something, but how to shut off all your other media and just write for whatever chunk of time at a time. And this summer I have thrown that all out. And if I ever finish this and it's a real book, I'm going to write an essay about what exactly I've done. But for a certain kind of temperament, oh, cool! Not only do I not only do I write with distractions, I have them built in. That there's something online that makes me go away from my from my my text. So that that getting to that fire, that deep focused fire. I have a stupid, annoying book right here by Robert Olin Butler about you have to get into that trance state. But I'm not capable of it, so I've always told myself I'm not a writer. But instead, what I do is I have the distractions draw me away, which so frustrates me. I really want to get back to what I'm writing. And I'll sit, and it might take me four hours to write what someone else does in an hour. But I'll get two or 3,000 words done. But I'm going in and out of the document the whole time. And maybe I don't have that fire and that passion, and it won't be good, but I'm going to finish a book doing it that way. And I wouldn't with the world telling me I have to shut everything out and focus on the one thing. Uh, yeah, I've always found that that's that maybe I've got ADHD too because mm -hmm. I, that's I've never worked in absolute silence. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wrote a great number of seminar papers with like Chemical Brothers blasting in the background. Sure. I'd like find a CD and blast it and sit down to write my seminar paper in literary <laughs> theory. <laughs> yeah. Just, and, and I needed black rock and beats. Exactly. <laughs> Which obviously dates when I was working on the degree <laughs> pretty clearly, doesn't it? Yeah. But I, I found, or 
you know, Paul's boutique or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But I found like the loud raucous music made sitting down to write you know, maybe something kind of painful, a deeply theoretical seminar paper for Laura Doyle's literary theory class, for instance. <laughs> it it just sweetened the deal. It sounded like I was having fun. I think it also injected an energy and a rhythm into my writing, which might have been absent in academic writing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I think working with a distraction is useful. Mm-hmm. It was- yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that maybe there, maybe what I'm saying is more familiar to other people than I realize, but I've just so deeply taken that as, as gospel that you're supposed to find a way to not do anything else for three hours yeah. uh, that, you know, I just feel like a complete fraud that I, that I have never been able to do that every now and then, but never regularly. Yeah. No, that, that makes complete sense to me. Did you want to talk about itch, 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 which, um, do you know that was the last issue of Meat for Tea I published before the pandemic? We mm-hmm. skipped we skip June and we're doing a double issue for September. Cool. Yeah. Um, it was a beautiful, beautiful essay. Thanks. It was my first step back into writing after Aww, pretty much. I'm honored. Uh, it, 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 it was... A, it was written during. It was in my MFA manuscript as a, a rougher draft, and then I just kind of got pulled away from all of it. I, I made the mistake of letting my creative energy be be sucked into a a, a business for a decade, and this was the first thing I came back to, and I guess I was working on it around it being 10 years. I started to look at it after being 10 years since she had died. Um, my mother, it's about my mother and her death. Yes. Uh, I'm, I, I was so happy that you took it. I just wanted to find it a home. Seeing as I'd, I'd worked on it and I, I thought of your magazine and, and it just made sense. I'm so glad you did. It's a lovely piece. Um, Poignant, powerful, moving, and just really honest. I love your just description of your, of just the strength of your mother's character. Just what a, she seemed like a, even though she's 5'2", she seemed like a powerful force in the world. Yeah, she certainly was. Everyone who knew her would agree with that. And the idea of both the pain and the, almost as painful as the pain is that it's a relief when someone dies. When they're in pain uh, like that. Yeah. But, but, but it's a different kind of pain to feel relieved. It's kind of a, wow, I don't want to feel relieved. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. No, I can, I can very much relate. Yeah. Well, you feel guilty about the relief. Yeah. Even yeah. though it's a natural way to feel. Now, my, my mom actually died my second year in the PhD program. Huh. Of uterine 
cancer. So wow. she was also vis- seven months pregnant with cancer. Yeah. As you so <laughs> you have it in front of you. Describe it. It's, yes, in front of me. I, I, was I watched say, I, I, her. No, no. I mean, are you? Did you? Did you find that, or did you remember that from mine? I remembered it. No, that's interesting. That's nice. Well, I, 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 I did give it a reread before having you on here. I oh, like that's to do good. a little homework. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I take this a little seriously. <laughs> I, I, I do so much homework before I guess. It's one of the things I love about making that podcast is that sometimes yeah. some, some of the people are people that whose work I love and I hunt them down as fans. Some are friends and some are people who a publicist to come to me and I'll spend two weeks immersing myself in, in a comedian or a writer. And it, mm-hmm. it's just great to take a deep, do a little seminar on someone. Do a little deep dive. Yeah. I thoroughly, I thoroughly agree. I know I quite envied you having George Saunders on. Oh man. I envy- And Simon, Simon Rich. Too, Simon actually. Rich was one who they, they came to me and I had no knowledge of him. And I read three of his books in a week. And and watched the whole TV series that he made, um, Man Seeking Woman. Yeah. Mark and I binged. Really we, fun. We binged on both seasons. So fun. So few so people fun. have seen that series. Isn't that sad? Yeah, it's such a good series. I love how it's yeah. um, it's comedy, and then it's it's completely theater of the absurd and surreal all at the same time. He was a terrific, terrific guest for someone who I had no idea who I was. He was, and he, I, he I was remember gracious and and eager, and we read. I I I I can't believe I got up the nerve to ask if we could do a reading together of one of his stories. And that we was did. so much fun. That, that's one of my favorite episodes. Death, I loved it. I yes. loved it. And you, you, Thank you. You, you. you do a mean death. I've got to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I was hoping my voiceover career would just take off after that, but. So, you know, it was that was tremendously good fun to listen to. That's great. And we'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back. And I remember, yeah, you, you, you mentioned feeling a little odd bec- to Simon because usually you had people that you at least new or new peripherally and this was basically a stranger yeah set up by his publicist just awesome so how long were you doing 15 minutes before publicists started reaching out to you to see if you wanted to have people on as guests um i mean it's probably been only like a half a dozen of those i mean i've gotten more than that of emails but sometimes it's just you get these emails of people, either them or the, or a publicist, just wanting them to get on any, you know, like I'll get financial advisors. What? They'll write me and be like, hey, <laughs> here's a guest for you. I'm like, have you even looked a little bit about what this podcast is? <laughs> it's not going to serve either of us. No. Um, That's uh, not going to be. I, I, I think it. it wasn't a matter of the time. It was the matter of. John Hodgman and Annie Duke being early guests. And Annie uh-huh. isn't a household name, but she's connected to people and to, you know, her own agent type people um, that I think gave the show legitimacy. And back when there were just, you know, just a million and not a billion podcasts, they were just looking for places for their people to 
to come on. If anybody right. you know looks at my guest list and is like, "Ooh, he's so lucky," you know, some of them though didn't know me or any friends of mine at all. It's just you hit someone at the right time. Brooke Gladstone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I just really love her and her work on on the media. And she had a book that had just come out, and so she was doing the rounds. And so I, I think I wrote her. I think I found out a way to write her directly. Because I ended up on the phone with her, not an agent. Uh, and she was like, sure. And we talked nice. for half an hour. She was in, you know, she only had a half hour for me, but it was, a, it was great fun. Um, but yeah, just, you should, if, you, if anyone wants to do a podcast and have on fancy people, just be prepared to maybe have one in 20 say yes. And don't, yeah. you know, don't, don't let it hurt your feelings. They are being asked to do things constantly. And if you keep asking... You'll hit someone just at a moment. Michael Ian Black. Oh, yes. I listened to that episode. That was great, he, too. I listened to quite a few now that I think about I it. I got lucky with that one because Annie knew his agent. But he doesn't go on very many things, that, or he wasn't then, going on almost anybody's things. But he happened to, when he wrote me back, he was like, you happen to have caught me on a day when I'm feeling like I owe something to the, to the world, so, I'm, so I'll, I'll come on your podcast. He was also, for someone who is very seemingly sarcastic and bitter and is not nice on Twitter, um, uh, uh, was extremely kind and gracious as well as a guest. Do you listen to his podcast, Obscure? Um, no, I listened to his old one that was more like mine, that was just uh, interviews. I have not yep. read, because I... I am the worst child in the world. My mother was a hearty scholar. <laughs> and I have, I have read one novel, uh, I am all, all, uh, and I, I never read her dissertation because it wouldn't have made any sense to me. Oh, wow. But how, how is Obscure? Obscure? It's, it's a hoot. It's an absolute hoot. <laughs> um, I mean, of course, I, I have read Jude the Obscure. I... I, I I read it in a mm -hmm. British novels class as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think that's one of Hardy's more readable books. Mm -hmm. It's not as pure torture as like Tess of the Durbervilles. I think Tess is the only novel I read, and that's, maybe that's why I didn't read more. That that would do it. Yeah. <laughs> that that would be off putting for sure. But um, yeah, he, he just he reads Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure chapter by chapter out loud with his wry commentary on the characters and situations happening hmm. within the novel. So he, he, he makes it really funny. Actually, it's such a strange project to take Thomas Hardy and Judy Obscure is like most of Hardy's writing fairly bleak and make it pretty darn amusing. Mm -hmm. Does he have a, a co-host? Nope, it's just Michael just Ian him. Black. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm, I mean, I guess you could say maybe Thomas Hardy is his co-host in a way. If you really enjoy him, go look at the guest list for How to Be Incredible. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was his conversation podcast. Because he, he was very, that. very good at it. And at switching gears from having like the president of now one day and, you know, a comedian the next day. Yeah, he's 
I listen to a few of those. I'm I'm a, a, just a huge podcast junkie. I can't. Well, I don't have to clean my own house now, but I'm still respectful of the places where <laughs> people have been letting us stay. And I, I can't like do dishes or any of the mundane housework. I have to have a podcast going in the background because housework's hella boring. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. is. I need something else to do with my brain. Yeah, me too. I, I haven't been listening as much because I used to listen to them while driving a lot. And I don't drive a lot anymore. I don't go For anywhere. commuting. Yeah, I mean, just up to uh, up the hill to Northfield Mount Hermon, just 15 minutes and back to every day. I, I, I worked, I work, I still work for them, but I won't be working up there. They're, they're coming back in the fall, but they're keeping the people who do my job, uh, tutors and academic coaches at home because they're going to try to, you know, kind of make it a little isolated little pod. Lucky for you. It kind of is, but I kind, I'm, I'm, I have very mixed feelings about it. Of course. Uh, I like my, my little, my, my, my kids up there. Um, and Zoom is, is limited in its ability to connect with human beings. And you are a writing tutor? Uh, I am what is called an academic coach. And okay. or a writing tutor and or uh, any any tutoring involving test prep or reading and writing for any course. But academic coach is a little bit more about, you know, study skills. Uh, yeah. All the things that I can teach, but... I'm not that good at doing. <laughs> I think that it's kind of the way it goes. I don't know. I'm, I I I don't think it's time for schools to reopen yet. I, mm-hmm. I understand missing the students, though. Yeah. I just I just feel like we need to wait until yeah. there's a, until there's a vaccine. Yeah. I think that would be the wise way. I'm I'm kind of in raw terror. I have little grandchildren and I've got two little grandsons living here in the valley, one of whom would be starting first grade in the fall. That's incredible. You have grandchildren. I have five grandchildren. Holy crap. The oldest is 11 and the youngest is four. Hmm. Wow. I have three grown up. Yeah. Well, I've got three grown up children and they all reproduced. So that's, that's how it came to be. Did not know that. But, yeah, my my son is thirty eight. How can I've, that be? These, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm old. I, I <laughs> never would have would have would have guessed uh, what what your I, age I mean, was, must be. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I hate to think of these tiny babies going back to school in the fall, and I've heard about yeah the the weird ways that COVIDs can affect children with neurological problems. It sounds kind of like um, yeah. the other disorders related to strap, like pandas and hate to think about these bright, beautiful little children succumbing yeah. to that. And I also feel like educators aren't really paid well enough to put their very lives on the line. Yeah. Yeah. You know who else isn't? Are you like gonna gros- get- grocery store workers aren't paid enough to put their lives on no, the line. No, they're not. I think about that every time I go to the store. I'm like, what a raw deal. They're still getting, you know, they're $13 an hour. Maybe. I know. They should be getting hazard pay. Yeah. Yeah. Easily. I want to I tip them, but I don't think I, that would go over. 
It should. They, they should all have jars, and, and everybody that cares should be able to leave $10 bills and $20 bills and whatever they have yeah. by the end of the day. So did you get your doctorate at UMass? Well, I... That was the plan. Um, <laughs> Is that where you were I getting through, your, yeah. I, I was working on my doctorate in um, composition rhetoric. Um, Peter Alba was to be my dissertation chair. I made it through. I made it through all of my coursework. And then it came time for the area exams. And my mom died the second year in, which led to a very impenetrable place, kind of case of writer's block for a while. So English PhD and writer's block, that's, that's not very compatible. Yeah. Doesn't work so well. And I also stopped getting child support at the same time wow. she died. So I had to take up a second section of teaching and also moonlight at the mulberry tree. Remember that store in Thorns? That's before my time. The mulberry tree? I, I think so. I've only been here 16 years uh, in the valley. I, if it was there, I didn't did, know it. Well, unless you were shopping for children's clothing or toys. <laughs> I wasn't. I mean, if you were in the market for some stuffed animals, you might have known about it. Mm -hmm. It was there for a long time. Hmm. So I, I just... Ended up having no time for my scholarship because I was just scrambling to keep children fed and keep the lights yeah. Yeah. turned on. And Charlie Moran called me into his office one day. Oh, I was day. just going to ask you about Charlie. Because yeah. I know Charlie because he is was one of Anya's favorite grown-ups when she was growing up. Aww. Uh, best friends with her, you know, with her parents. Nice. Yeah, and, and he, like, on his dying bed gave her advice that she, she carries with her every day. And he, I, I only got to know him a little bit, but uh, he seemed like a great, great guy. He was. He, he kind of set me down for a hard talk. He's like, you are not progressing in your scholarship. I'm like, nope. I haven't been able to figure out how to work two jobs and teach double sections and take care of the kids and find time for my scholarship. Yeah. So anyway, th there was that. I mean, he very sweetly, my right after my mom died, there was a, what was it? Computers and writing future of the book seminar. There's a whole lot of postulating around that time. It was 1998, 99 about, you know, the the possible future where books are obsolete. Mm. So he invited me to bring my then four-year-old daughter to class with me if I needed to, mm. which made my head explode. I actually, I, I just, I couldn't even imagine trying right. to focus on seminar. And I, I don't know when the last time he had um, an active four-year-old in a seminar, but I'm pretty sure he didn't want that. <laughs> He had such cute ideas. He's like, you can just set her up to play in my office. I'm like, oh, so do you like your computer? Would you, yeah, right. do you want it? <laughs> She's four. She will fuck shit up, dude. That's what they do. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I had a couple students who brought kids to GCC classes that I taught, but they were not four. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, the, an, an active four-year-old, especially in a PhD seminar, no one's going to, and no one's going to concentrate either. Everyone's going to be like, oh, let's play with the kid. Yeah. This is way yeah. more fun than theorizing about the future of printed book matter. Yeah. Well, yeah. if it's any, you know, any consolation, Annie got to the very end of her psychology doctorate and freaked out and then became a professional poker player. Yeah. Never well, I got to almost, I, it was time for my area exams and my middle daughter, Madeline, was 16 and was having rather a tumultuous adolescence. And it just, it occurred to me that I'd exhausted all my critical thinking abilities dealing with that. And I didn't really have anything left for mm. the area exams. But, you know, I, I always have this sort of hope that I've been doing meat for tea for 14 years now. Wow. Honorary, anybody? Honorary? Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just, yes. Can we talk? You should, it's, yes. It's won some awards. It's, you know, it's a, not, a, not a shabby publication. No. So that's, that's this, my little pie in the sky yeah. dream. Was there anything else you would want to tell us about? Before we say good night, I feel like we've had a um, good. This has been, run yeah, a really good thing. run, I've and got, I feel I like I've interrupted you. It's really hard on these remote calls here in the era of COVID. It's very hard not to step on each other's speech. It's got to do with not being able to see each other, and mm -hmm. it happens. On both ends. And obviously, if it weren't coronavirus, we would just have you sit at the table with me. Yeah. But no, it happens. Yeah. Um, my book club meets over Zoom and we're we're intermittently talking over one another because it's it's something to do with the distance. Well, and also Zoom is just a flawed technology because it kind of works like a walkie-talkie. You can't over talk, it just chooses one person to, who it who Zoom, Zoom will only hear one person at once. And so everybody, try, try, no, you can't hear anybody. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, as opposed to, say, FaceTime, where you can both be talking at the same time a little, and there's a little bit of that freedom yeah. to over talk. But you wouldn't use that for a podcast recording, would you? I don't think the sound quality would be very good. No, I've used Skype and it's hit and miss. Mm -hmm. And I've used phone. Most of the time I'm I'm using Skype. I Skype to their phone or to their Skype. Do you like Skype better? I don't know. It's just what my software worked with. Uh, but I will say that I think I've had as much, if not more, success having good conversations with people remotely than in person. Same here. And actually, since God, we only have a very few episodes of our podcast that were recorded prior to COVID. Mm -hmm. The bulk of them had been remote conversations. Mm -hmm. About the um, 15 minutes podcast before I bid you adieu, um, what are you, do you have some idea what you might be doing for an upcoming episode? Do you have some thoughts on who you want to talk I have, to. I have a couple, and I've had some on deck, and I think we all just kind of shut down 
you know, I was hoping I used to do like one a week and then it got to two a month and I was trying to keep up one a month and now it kind of fell apart this year. But there are a few waiting in the wings. One is another visit with a radio host podcaster named Hardy White, who's been a guest multiple times, who's on WFMU and who I as is close to a to a guru as I've ever felt. <laughs> I've got to check um, them out. Oh, he is a very wonderful, strange man who talks once a week, uh, pretty much. He, partially, he does skits with a bunch of different voices. He hates the word skits. Oh, my God. Uh, he does parts in the beginning. But then he just talks. And the first time Anya and I heard him, I know we're getting really long right now. But That's okay. Anya and I were driving down to New York, and this staticky, southern preacher-sounding man started started coming into focus and we listened to him as we drove down to the city in the evening one day uh, like i don't know eight years ago must have been and at first we thought it was this religious show and then he would mix he'd be talking about you know being kind to one another and then things would start mixing in like the andy griffith show and foucault and jay-z and and he he just he none none of those are three examples that aren't his but that he just is a, he's a very, he's not to everyone's taste, but if you like him, you're going to love him. I have, I am very intrigued. It sounds fabulous. The, sh- it, the show is called Miracle Nutrition with Hardy White. Oh my God. And it's, it's on Thursday nights on WFMU, or you can just find the podcast version. Right. Which I, I just find the podcast so, version. So he and I are due to talk again, and we are going to talk about a specific, because we've talked the fame thing to death, but we both watched some old Hawaii Five O, and we picked an episode that we both watched that has to, that kind of relates to protests these days. And so it'll be humor. It, it might be a little tricky to have a serious conversation because Five O is such a ridiculous show it's so campy um, yeah but so we're supposed to talk and then there's a woman who hosts who i heard a british woman who hosts a show called the casual birder and she just she just likes birds and she talks about her bird watching oh my god but i just thought in my time of making a podcast i've thought more and more that voices are very important and that like one of the i really like reply all their voices are too similar. And when all three of them are on, it's very frustrating to me. And she has this little, you know, she's about my age and she's British and she likes birds. And I thought I'd, we'd just have a conversation and see what happens. I love that. And she's that. down. So we're going to do that. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited uh, about that. That sounds so cool. Actually, the, so his name is Party White? No, Hardy. Hardy. H-E-A-R-T-Y. Like Hardy White Bread. Okay, got it. And Miracle Nutrition. That is wild. Um, there's actually an improv podcast called MAGA. Wait, Mega. Mega. And, <laughs> and it's based on mega churches. Have you heard it? Uh-huh. No. Well, it's just a whole bunch of... Um, Oh, is Jamie Loftus on? It's just a whole bunch of comedians. Oh, Jamie Loftus. Yeah. I think I, she's I, on I, it. I think Paul F. Tompkins is on it. But it, it's just a whole bunch of people improvising like they're members of a mega church mm. satirically. And it's it's absolutely ridiculous and just a complete scream. I will check that out. It just absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's Jamie a Loftus 
she made a, a pretty good limited run podcast about when she kind of infiltrated Mensa. Yes, I listened to it. Wasn't it so good? Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty it good. Was yeah. So great. No, I listened to that. And then with special guest Jamie Loftus, did you listen to that one? No. That's where she actually has a guest assign her to improv that she's a completely other character as her guest. Oh. And the interviewer. <laughs> I'm, I'm All right. such a big podcast dork. It's pretty ridiculous. You clearly are. It, it's 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 bad. It's quite a habit. Mm, I don't know. I, if I it's like bad. it. Yeah, I, I. It's hard not to start asking you for about a, a millions of others, but I'm not going to do it. Well, I can. I can. We can be in touch also socially too. Yes. Yes, no, indeed. Not just on the podcast. And I have a funny yes. story about fame. Sometime, if you ever want it, so reach oh. out. Oh. Oh, I will. I have a pretty funny fame story. You know, the other thing I've I've wanted to do but I haven't done is just get, you know, if you go all the way back to the beginning, you'll see there are two or three five-minute episodes that are just people telling one story. And I want I wanted those to be regular and they never it just didn't grow that way. Um, I think this but, one might might fit. It might be a little bit longer than 5 minutes. Oh, it I doesn't could, matter, but I mean just a just could a be story. Like 10. Like, yeah, here's Elizabeth McDuffie with her fame story. Boom. It would help me, like, to get back rolling with these to make some of those. I'd be glad to. That'd be okay. super fun. Well, I will say goodnight, Jamie. This was a lot yes. of fun. We should Thank talk you to so each other much. more often. We absolutely should. So I really appreciate fun. it. It's nice to be a guest. Thank you. It's nice to have you as a guest. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right. Stay Good well. Good night, Jamie. You stay well. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. This is called Itch, 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 Notes on a Mother's Death. It's an essay written and recorded by me, Jamie Berger, recorded in front of an open window on a hot day in a room without air conditioning. So let's have some fun with some ambient background. Itch, itch, itch. Scribble, scribble, scribble. At the end of letters, emails, even phone conversations. Or sometimes, italicized and with three capital letters after each one. Scribble, scribble, scribble. Or one word, all lowercase. Scribble, scribble, scribble. Sheila Barbara Strongenberger's mantra for her only son. Part tongue-in-cheek, part earnest encouragement, part nag, part self-mocking, she started signing off with it early in the millennium, when writing, really, this time I meant it, became the thing I was doing. Again. With every creative career decision and switch I'd made, every turn I'd taken, every pursuit I'd abandoned three to five thousand hours in, at least 5,000 short of the magic 10,000 hours needed for expertise that Malcolm Gladwell had made famous. As always, Mom, in turn, got angry with me for changing course again, then panicked, 
then worried, then came around to my new pursuit and began her planning and organizing how I would accomplish my goal. Well, everyone knows that the only way to write is to write and write and write, which I hadn't then and have still never steadily, regularly done. Not as a poet in my early 20s, not as a writer performance artist in my late 20s and early 30s, not as a would-be features and fiction writer in my mid to late 30s. Thus, her hope against hopeful scribble, scribble, scribble as I headed back east to be an older creative writing MFA, MFA student at 40. Fall 2007, she was diagnosed. There was surgery, then chemo, then a good prognosis, then six months of waiting, then some celebration of what appeared to be recovery at my wedding in August 2008. A few weeks later, though, there was a shadow on some scan or other, then another test and a result. A little cancer left, but a good prognosis and a plan. More chemo starting right away. She was weak all that fall and sick, much more so than the first round. In November, mom finished chemo, but remained weak longer than expected, spent time in the hospital, then a few days in a rehab center. So, another test. Our Thanksgiving plan had been for me to drive from the small town in western Massachusetts where I live, the two hours due west to Albany, pick mom up and bring her back out to the little town where my wife Anya and I live for her first visit to our new house on what has always been our favorite family holiday. The Friday before I was to come for her, she called and gave me the news. I don't remember just how she put it, but it was very simply. I do remember her voice sounding more worried about my reaction than her demise. An odd combination of incredible generosity and megalomania as I look back on it now. How would I ever live without her? Four weeks to four months. That's what they gave her. Funny word, gave, as if the doctors got to choose. I got off the phone, packed a bag, and drove to Albany. Stayed with her for two nights, then drove back the two hours to force my reluctant UMass freshmen to learn how to write one more time before they headed home for the long Thanksgiving weekend to overeat and party at homecoming. At Sheila's insistence, I stayed in Massachusetts and went ahead with the Thanksgiving with Anya, her parents, our friend Janelle, and our dogs and cats. Black Friday. I wrap the wishbone in a piece of paper towel and head back over the river and through the woods, the two hours to Albany. My ferocious, unsentimental mom nearly cries when I unwrap the bone for us to snap. In the kitchen, we pull at it, or, well, my now tiny mother holds on tight and I pull. My wish, of course, that she win this stupid fucking contest. I bend the bone just so with my fingernail to make it break, to try to make it break in the middle, and it does, and she smiles and says... With tiny mother astonishment, I won. Sheila Berger has always been short and small, but no one ever thinks of her as 5'2 on a tall day because she has a largeness and elegance. Her long, high cheekboned face, 
her big, at times daunting personality, her grace. Now, though, she is just plain tiny everywhere but the belly, swelled with the fluid around the tumor. She is seven months pregnant with cancer. The cancer is gloating. She lies in bed and thinks and sleeps and wakes, and sometimes still worries, as she has every night for my entire life, sometimes till well past midnight at the kitchen table over items on her incredible lists. But not so much now, between her inherent weakness and the Xanax and the morphine. And from bed now. Did I have lunch? Does her sob need new tires before we give it to Anya? Her list gets shorter every day. Mine grows and grows. I sit by her bed, watching her sleep offer something vaguely like solace. She wakes. I just remembered that I love poetry. Almost smiles, closes her eyes again. I am Sheila's magnum opus. Unfinished. I haven't finished my homework. I have no career to speak of, creative or otherwise. Just jobs. No one told me there was a deadline, and now it's too fucking late. Sheila Berger's existence will not accept any more papers at this date. I fail. I fail her. I fail me. She fails? I was the big project, after all. I'm 44. have had plenty of time. Been given extension after extension. But I've dabbled and dabbled and dabbled in acting and poetry and performance and voiceover and comedy and journalism and fiction and nonfiction. And now, in the middle of grad school, much to her chagrin, a huge digressive turn co-owning a bar and restaurant. Dabble, dabble, dabble. I leave her apartment to go shopping. Life goes on. Clichés exist for a reason. Out in the world, I see Sheila all over Albany. On a sign for Sheila's Wines and Liquors I'd driven by all my life and never noticed before. On the radio, Sheila was going to be the tallest person in the house. I LOL for real at that one. Must be one tiny bunch of roommates. She always laughed at being called elegant. When I first get to Albany, I bumble about the apartment I'm still getting used to since she sold our house a few years ago, trying to please her. I talk too much, am over-solicitous, a word she would use. Stop trying so hard, she says. Stop talking, she says. I'm too tired, she says, confused, forgetting she's dying. I am wearing her out just being there. Wearing her out, bringing her the juice she asked me to bring her. I get it. This is a different kind of tired. One night, I visit my father, who lives about 15 minutes away, to watch a Knicks game. While I'm gone, Sheila gets up to go to the bathroom, flips a light switch, sees a spark jump from the switch plate, then nothing. Darkness. Something has blown in the shoddy wiring of the recent shoddy refurb of the upscale old apartment building right off the park. She calls, asks me if there's anything I did that might have made it happen. Then she tells me it's fine. It is so not fine. She is furious with the landlord, the contractor, the building manager, my father, with me for leaving. A bit of the old Sheila. 
the demon strength bumbling up one last time. She pauses, then tells me to enjoy my visit with my father and come home after the game is over, not to worry about it. Enough lights are still working. I worry about it at my father's for a few more minutes, then say goodnight and head back. The Knicks are awful this year anyway. When I get there, my mother sits up in bed, cross-legged, and starts talking and rocking, slowly, quietly at first, then faster and faster, but with no strength for volume. A rage torrent at my father for existing and for the fact that he gets to keep on existing. At me for having suggested that she might want to have some friends visit the other day. How could you have suggested those people to me? What, what would I say to them? What were you thinking? I can't stand it. I can't stand those people. Why would I want to see them? Don't you even know me? Do you know me? Though, how could you do that? You were so... And on and on it, it comes. It pours. This is her last rant. Last burst. Barely above a whisper. She sits and rocks as she speaks. Then stops looking at me. Just looks straight ahead, murmuring on in a trance. Fucking Mark Berger, your goddamn father just wants to see me because he wants to cry. Maudlin bullshit. Wants to feel sorry for me, for himself. I sit with it. Go, Sheila, go. I don't want her to stop. But she is running out of gas. She finally stops and starts to cry. Tells me to leave her alone. So I leave the room. Wait for it calls me back a minute later, apologizes, but still doesn't understand. How could I think she wanted to see those people? I tell her I'm sorry. I won't suggest any visitors again. I tell her I'm sorry. I don't understand, but I don't understand the not wanting to see anyone. One of my main jobs is to be her sentry. She has cut everyone off but me. In her position, I imagine I want to see every dear face, touch people, Hold them. Sheila's deepest fury right this minute is that I don't know the inside of her head as well as she does. That not enough of me is her. Not enough of her is me. She reaches to pull me in for a kiss. Holds me for three, four, five seconds. And then says she's sorry again. Tells me to go away again. I look in maybe five minutes later and she's dead asleep. Now she's in bed all the time, except to go to the bathroom, which she still gets up and does on her own. Occasionally makes her way to the kitchen to eat a few crackers, drink some ginger ale, maybe try a piece of a slice of canned pear. She doesn't like me to linger, just to be nearby, on call, in the living room. It's gotten completely dark in the last hour. I sit down in my chair by her bed in the dark, she wants to tell me about crackers. Those crackers, the ones you like, the salty, sweet, round ones you know, up in the cupboard above the sink. But if you open them, sweetie, please tie them up in a baggie with a twisty. Long pause as she gathers her strength. Something important is coming. It would not improve the end of my life to see a mouse. Okay, Mom. I laugh. I'm not joking. Okay, Mom. I know it's funny, sweetie, but do it, okay? Jamie, Jamie. Coming, Mom. What were you doing out there? 
Making a drink? No, Mom, but I was thinking about it. Want one? A joke. I still try. She. Hint of a smile and a look. She is not worried about my drinking. She fears me not self-medicating. What was all that noise then? I tell her I'm just doing some dishes, going through the mail, tossing old magazines like she asked. But I kept all the clippings, I tell her, like she asked. All her life, she has clipped, clipped, clipped articles, images, comics from the Times, the New Yorker. Clippings? It's too late for fucking clippings. Ha! This laugh and the mouse crackers directive. Momentary bursts of not dead yet energy I've come to savor. She's still rolling. There's a title for you, sweetie. Too late for clippings. But no one would know what you're talking about. She weak laughs again. She's out of breath from all the talking. There's a sentence I never thought I'd write about my mother. Okay, go away. Go have a drink, sweetie. Have some dinner. I tiptoe back in a little while. She lies there sleeping, facing the windows in the late afternoon graying on her right side because that's the only comfortable way for her to lie because of the fluid. Looking out of the window, I imagine she's drifting in and out of sleep, thinking of poorly rewrapped crackers and mice and clippings and lists and chores and maybe poetry or some Hardy or Virginia Woolf or maybe a song, maybe some jazz or Bronsky beat small town boy, which I bought her the 12 inch of a million years ago. Lists only in her head now. Not like before, the nightly ritual, papers sprawled out around her on the kitchen table, pens and highlighter and pencil and scotch tape and post-its and whiteout at the ready to scratch off, add, cover up. So much of her daily life for decades, adding things to and scratching off those gorgeous chaotic sculptural lists, monthly desktop calendars covered by layers upon layers. The anxiety as they grew, what needed to be done then got done, the joy of scratching things off, the end of that joy. I do the list making and scratching off now. She is on my list now. I watch TV in the living room, sitting on the floor in front of the couch, volume very, very, very low. Young women are competing to be Paris Hilton's best friend. I am watching young women compete to be Paris Hilton's best friend. Sheila Berger is dying while I watch young women on TV compete to be Paris Hilton's best friend. I don't watch these shows. I don't know why I'm watching one now. A girl sits in a hot tub telling the camera, telling Paris, her voice a quiver, why she wants this so bad. I'm not here to be a rock star. I'm not here to get anything. I'm just here to be your friend. The season is just starting. Sheila Berger will leave the world without knowing who will become Paris Hilton's new best friend. Anya visits. At first I wrote the words, my wife, which felt cold. We are much closer than that, of course. But in the scope of things here right now, she is my wife. A distant thing from a far place from here. She and Sheila sit in the dark together. Very thin Anya looks downright stocky next to my mom, her arms wonderfully thick, full of warmth and vigor. It's almost unbearably good to have her here, because I know she has to go back home, to go to work tomorrow. We stay up late, tiptoe around, 
silently scream at the horribly redone super creaky floors. In the morning, I burn toast in the decades-old toaster oven I've known for half my adult life. Anya throws the bread in the sink, but it's too late. Mom smells it, calls me. She's sitting up. How could you? You, you know that toaster. You know I... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You didn't mean it, but damn it. Sorry, Mom. Sorry. And then I realize that while Anya's rushing around the apartment fanning smoke, I'm burning the next batch as we speak and run out of the room. Toast is on fire this time. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Anya and I running around opening windows in December, fanning with towels, praying the smoke alarm doesn't go off as Sheila goes on talking from her room. Yes, yes, you've got a lot on your mind, of course, and it's just burnt toast, not much in the grand scheme of things. No, not much at all, but how could you? You you know that damn toaster oven. Sheila wants to talk to me about something, but tells me to have some breakfast first. I very, very carefully make more toast, then join her. Sweetie, when I'm gone, when I die, you like to eat. And you might gain some weight. This has always been an issue between us. Always checking me, sometimes even patting my belly. Giving me one or another version of, You're getting a belly. Don't get a belly, sweetie. Don't be one of those thin men with a belly. I've always had a belly. I inherited it from her. As an adult, I've never gained or lost more than 10 pounds. I exercise. I am healthy. She continues. When I die, you go ahead and eat if it makes you feel better. You'll gain some weight, but that's okay. You'll get back to normal in time. Do what makes you feel better. Don't worry about it. Okay, Mom, I will. I feel I might cry. I decide not to. This is an odd, powerful gift, an oddly powerful gift. This is grace, letting go of control. Of me. This, it turns out, is what Grace feels like. Ridiculous. She sends me away. I sit on the living room couch and really cry for the first time since I got the news. It's time to go. Two giants arrive to take my mother to hospice. Humongous ambulance men. The smaller one is about 6'2", 250. The huge one is much bigger in every way. He lifts my mom out of bed like she's a toddler. Her not 5'2 is now well under 5 feet. Her 135 or so pounds that she always wanted to lose 5 of, now down to must be 85 tops. Just pretend we're dancing, sweetheart, the giant says, as he hoists tiny rag doll Sheila, incredible, into a wheelchair. Sheila Berger is dying fast, but she's just 73. Not nearly as old as she's come to look in the past month. Flesh hanging off her bones. Face sunken more each day. More of a skull than a head. Deathly. The two giants don't realize they're taking her in for good and all. They just know we're going to the hospital. They talk to her in ways that someone talks when someone is going to the hospital for the normal reason, to get well, the way you talk to someone who's going to be coming home again. I've always trusted doctors, 
even like going to them because they tell me what's wrong and eventually they fix it until they can't. This is what we learn now, Sheila and I, until they can't. Sheila has always driven doctors up the wall. There's a public service announcement on TV lately encouraging people to ask their doctors questions. It shows some guy asking a million questions to a phone store clerk, his, guitar, his car mechanic, a waiter. But then in the doctor's office, Doc says, any questions? And the guy says, no, shakes his head. Nope, uh-uh, I'm good. That ad was not made for Sheila Berger. She researched and printed out articles and clipped and copied and brought her lists into their offices and got her goddamn questions answered. She'd sit down in their offices, unpack her bag, and begin the interrogation. She made doctors miss tea times. Male doctors especially hated it. But a month from now, when I call the woman who was her longtime GP for the last time to tell her Sheila is gone, she cries. This is how it is with Sheila Berger. She's a great pain in the ass, great meaning big and overwhelming and wonderful. A wonderful pain from which I will soon have horrible relief. Three days after her 73rd birthday, we are at the inn. The fucking inn. The hospital wing, the hospital wing of St. Peter's Hospital. No more research to be done. No choices to be made. No more questions to be asked, answered. Except for a few about time and pain. And I'm the one doing most of the asking. Everyone gets a single room at the inn. People are dying to get in and then they die to get out. But I'm bummed. I'll be here all week. Good, she says out of nowhere. Once we've got her set up. I don't like the number 72. You don't like twos, it's true. I agree. You and your nines, she replies. Me and my nines. Her and her threes. She's made it to 73. When my father and I went to the track once or twice a summer, she'd always give me $3 to bet on the three horse in the third race. Today, the intake nurse talks to us. Sheila tells her she wished she lived in Washington State so she could pull her own plug, that she hates waiting to die, that she doesn't want to watch herself waste away. The woman tells us that at hospice they don't think of it as waiting for death, but as just another phase of life. My mother looks the poor woman dead in the eye. Well, I don't see it that way. Done versus finished. I remember a Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner conversation about done versus finished. Walter, my mother's mentor and friend, her former professor, former chairman of the English department, they were both in for 30-some years, disgusted with his students for not knowing the difference between the two. It's so very simple. Walter, tall and aristocratic, Britishy, deep-voiced Canadian, former competitive tennis player, decorated World War II vet, who came back and went to Harvard for his PhD, Walter Knott's truly elegant, probably lifelong closeted gay man. How can they be so daft? To this day, with my two going on three degrees in English, I can never remember the difference. Sheila is done? Is finished? 
When food is cooked, it's done. When we've eaten it all, it's finished. Is that it? Is she done? Ready to come out of the oven of this life? Ready for carving? Or finished? All eaten up. Nothing left but scraps. Sheila Berger lies in her hospice room at the inn, becoming a skeleton, and I think, I am fucking hungry. I really want to go get some fucking KFC. I want to go flirt with that bartender girl. She's 24, a girl compared to me, certainly, if not the word I'd use in public. At the Thai restaurant next to the KFC. I really want to go play online poker. I want to consume. I want action, action, action. I crave action. There's very little action available to me right now. Sedation is much easier to come by via drinking, via my mom's Xanax. And so I go to the bar of the Thai place next to the KFC where the Rachel girl works. And I drink and I chat with her and she chats with me. Seems relieved to have a stranger to talk to on a dead night when she... And when she goes off to serve someone, I read my book I'm reading. Action and sedation. Perfect. She tells me about school, about her punk rock boyfriend... I tell her about my mom. I read an amazing page I love and I read it again and repeat. Sip whiskey, flirt, watch her healthy young hands and arms make drinks. Watch the rest of her as she walks away. Read again and repeat. And the world softens a bit and I am grateful and thankful for reading and sad for mom who doesn't have the energy to listen to me read to her. And then for myself, for not ever taking the time it would take to even conceive of writing such a page I've just read and reread. Such an important page. A page that makes some people think about something momentous in a new way. Makes others think about it for the first time and laugh and shake their heads and maybe later take action. Read, sip, watch, repeat. I write a note about the page in a small black notebook and now... I've typed it here. Scribble. Back at the apartment, I chomp down my three-piece original recipe, holding on as long as I can to this couple-hour respite from the inn. It's extremely hard right now to see the point in healthy living when someone who for the past 20 years measured her portions to the ounce, exercised exactly as much as the books told her to do, did her yoga, drank her green tea, you get the idea. When she's where she is now, four weeks to four months from her end at 73. No more tiptoeing around the apartment. I stomp the fucking creaky fucking floors. I turn the TV up. I sleep in my mother's bed, on the sheets she's been sleeping on. They don't smell like anything. Nothing left to smell. No sweat, no shit, no piss, nothing. The idea of sleeping on this bed feels kind of creepy, but what a great mattress. I get good and sedated with one more pill and one more drink and actually sleep six hours straight. Through this all, friends on the other end of the phone, enlightened, liberated, what we now, a decade later, revising this call woke men, tell me to be strong. Be fucking strong. How ridiculously macho and useless a thing to say. What the fuck is in that for me? Women don't tell me this. 
Be weak. Feel everything. That's my fucking motto. Not that I live up to it or anything, but it's good to have a motto. Carpe mortem. Five days before my mother is to die. 17 days after they gave 28 to 120 days. I sit in the huge leather lounge chair in the fluorescent day room at the inn. A pair of overweight early teen cousins watch TV. Visiting a parent or grandparent, I wonder. One is on the phone. She is whiny sarcastic. You know why I don't find that funny? She asks. I play Wordle. <clears throat> a bogglish word-finding game on my iPhone at 3 a.m. at her bedside. I love my iPhone. Each game is three minutes. Ready? Go! Dead, deathly, deadly, aid, eed, dad, done, donut, enod. Well, I tried. Node, noted, nodes. No mom on this screen, but she does seem to show up a lot lately. I sit, I pace, I watch TV in the day room in the middle of the night. I leave the hospital. I go to the seedy old man dive bar across the street from the hospital. Behind the bar is one very old man, the game on the TV. I am the lone customer, one too many by the look on his face. I have a shot and a beer and go home. I look at porn. I play poker online. I watch TV all at once. It starts to get light out, so I go to sleep. They will call me if anything happens. I am positive they won't reach me and I'll miss it somehow and I'll have fucked up again. Daytime. I visit my father for lunch. He actually asks, how is she? I look at him. I look across his living room. I notice he's bought a home blood pressure machine. That time when she said she'd wished I was gay. Or did it even happen? I'll have to ask her. I know it happened, but in what context? There's a sentence I won't be thinking for long. I'll have to ask her. At the end of freshman year of college, she called me in New York and screamed and screamed at me on the phone for looking for an apartment and a summer job before finals were over. Fucking this, fucking that, you're a fuck up, the Sheila rage. The apology came a few hours later, of course. She obsessing over my life of distractions, of unfinished projects, flawed, unrealized, undone distractions, stopping scribbles from being more than just scribbles, sketches, beginnings, so many beginnings of stories, novels, poems, plays, artifacts of unrealized potential. Teachers telling her that I had a great deal of it all the way back to middle school. I remember screaming back at her over the line until I cried. She was being so unfair, but as always, spot on. I got a C plus, some B's, and an A minus in English. It's a life I've more or less led, a 2.99999 GPA life, back when 3.0 was a B. Day two at the inn. She's finally getting comfort, a.k.a. more morphine. Hospice is largely about comfort slash morphine. A place to go to be given it, to give in to it, a little more each day. We say we don't euthanize, but that's exactly what we do, if subtly, thank God. The head nurse, her actual real name, Donna Reed, 
just like in the movies, is very nice and good. A bit too hospice, spiritual, self-helpy, peppy, of course. What do you need? She asks, he asks me often. But she's good. She cares. For the first time in weeks, Sheila sleeps for hours at a time and peacefully. It's just about all she does. When she wakes, one time, I gently rub at the furrow lines between her brow. I am getting used to touching her more, holding her hand, petting her arm. I will do these things. She will let me. Sheila Berger is teaching me how to die. She is an excellent teacher, as always. Sitting on the toilet in the little bathroom next to the kitchen that's available for all to use at the inn. They're nicely set up for people to stay a while. To settle in. Outside, someone sits down at the dayroom piano and begins to play a player piano-sounding version of We Three Kings of Orient Are. It's December, after all. Plink, plink, plink. A rush of memory comes, of Christmas time years ago. Up our block were two houses shared by six of my mom's conscious, consciousness-raising group friends, her radical lesbian friends, the people she won't let see her now. Judy wears a cashmere cowl neck. Joan plays the piano while Francine directs us in a rousing We Three Queens of Orient are and other regendered holiday hits. Here at the inn, the dayroom piano plinks on. Sheila's neck is all spine and two ropey hints of muscle. Her body is eating her to stay alive, but all the while the cancer belly grows. The cancer is still gloating. We let it gloat. We don't worry about it anymore. Just about comfort. To get mad at it now is just to lose again. Back at the apartment, half drunk and rageful and full of bad Chinese food, Needing sleep and wanting action, action, action. I Google strip club and Albany. In my life of going to porn and peeps in New York and San Francisco, I've never been to a strip joint in my hometown. A few minutes later, I'm down in a seedy edge of wrong side of the tracks Albany I never even really knew existed. Down by the river at Ciro's Place. The club has a parking lot with a barbed wire fence around it, promising. Inside the club is very small, not terribly filthy, but somewhat run down. The dancers are all black, as is the bouncer and the bartender. Bud is just $4, a bargain for a strip club. It's an empty weeknight after midnight. <clears throat> and it's just me, the bouncer, the dancers, the bartender. A dancer comes up. We have the usual chat. What brings me here? Do I want a lap dance? I'll think about it. She is half drunk and pouty. I buy her a drink. She rubs against me, hand on my thigh. She tells me about her daughter, about moving up from Philly. Do I want to dance yet? Maybe soon. How about now? Okay, sure. I really, really don't want a lap dance, but her daughter's future education really wants me to. I pay her $15 for the dance. She rubs around on me. I'm not attracted to her. She's so obviously bored. I pay for a second dance. I manage to beg off a third and get out the door. Action, yippee. Back in the living room, I watch TV 
pretend that I can write while I'm watching TV because I'm allowed to do whatever I want right now and tap out some notes about the evening. Eating is just one of those escapes of mine, Mom. But she knows that. The rest was inferred. I can do whatever I want because my mother is fucking dying and she said I can. That's why. You got a problem with that? I know how to touch type because she made me learn. How? Between senior year of high school and college. So yes, I can absolutely write and watch TV. Thanks, Mom. I'm doing it right now. To NBA highlights. So there. As I sit here post zeros, I wonder what are your secrets, Mom? Where are they? You must have written something down. You wrote everything down. And if I find something, or if I find something in my head that I really want to ask you, something I want to know, some advice I need you to give, and you can't because you can hardly talk anymore, and in a day, maybe two, you won't be able to talk at all, and a day or two after that, I stay up late, 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 5 a.m. late. I will be in no shape tomorrow. I don't need to be in shape. This is a fucking vacation. A vacation of grief. I have nothing else on my calendar. No commitments at all. At the end, Donna Reed tells us she needs to perform a procedure to see if my mother is retaining urine, something like an ultrasound, to peer through the cancer belly and look at her bladder, to insert something in her to drain fluid, maybe. My mother breathes in. Is this for longevity or for comfort? Comfort, Donna replies. Sheila nods. This is the answer she wants. If we'd met under more pleasant circumstances, I'd fire some It's a Wonderful Life lines at Nurse Donna Reed. Mary, don't you know me? It's probably on TV every day now. A movie my mother and I watched together many times. My favorite Christmas movie. I think she likes Miracle on 34th Street a little better. Sheila Barbara Strongenberger is ready for her life to end. Time's up. Pencils down. In the day room, lights are off. Late afternoon again, dusky. Quiet, but for the hum of hospital. I walk down the hall. They have drained the fluid, offering some relief. My mother sits upright. Her electric bed has her seated upright. After being scanned, drained, and sleeping all day, she can barely speak. I've been sleeping so much. Usually after they drain me, I'm so much stronger. Don't know why I'm sleeping so... The pause is long. She takes a deep breath, a big effort. I'm dying. We go to doctors, to hospitals, expecting to be made well. No matter what we know to be true, we expect to go on, to keep scribbling. Stopping makes no sense at all. I sit in the day room, 3 a.m., lights out, visitors gone except for the one family on death watch all packed into the room down the hall. I've been to the old man bar plus half a Xanax, but I can't go back to the apartment. Can't bear to leave her here, to sleep. Can't risk missing it. So I play poker on my computer screen with people awake somewhere, people in Vegas, Sweden, 
notorious, bizarrely aggressive, the Northern European players. I bet and I raise and I fold and I win and I lose and I go in and look on, in on her. I turn out the bedside lamp. Bedside. Lovely word. Her lungs pump air in and out, in and out. The fucking horror. All my life I've had nightmares of my father dying. Never her. She is supposed to keep driving me up a wall forever. My heart won't stop pounding and I have no more drugs for it right here and now. Fuck, where's my morphine? Does everyone visiting the inn think this at some point? Now I am the only visitor. No one but me. They will not, will not see her like this. Her dictum. All those so-called friends, all those people who've betrayed her in one way or another. These last years she sees betrayal everywhere. Somehow never in me. They will not remember her this way. This is part of her thinking. <clears throat> see, Mom, I do know you. I just hope there was someone, anyone besides me and Anya, who you could let in. But I'm the gatekeeper, and I have kept that fucking gate. No one has dared disobey Sheila's rules. Certainly not now. The word is out. They don't come. They sit at home and wait for word from me. At the memorial next spring, they will talk to me about it, some of them. Their anger a burden, impeding their sadness, their mourning, their closure of the Sheila Berger book. That I try to help them unload that day, and we will all feel better at the angriest memorial ever. My mother is about to die, but I will keep on living. A simple, declarative, complex sentence. Declarative? Complex or compound? How many years teaching English in one way or another? And, I, and do I even know what that means? Is a sentence making a it is a sentence making a declaration. But is that what a declarative sentence is? Did she ever teach me this? I don't think finished versus done meant much to her. But yes, I know she taught me compound and complex sentences. Does anyone even use those terms anymore? Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Walter. Words don't always mean what they say they mean. This I declare. This is how it goes. It goes this way. Suddenly I'm writing like Laurie Anderson. Yes. Oh, Mom and Dad. Mom and Dad. Ha, ha, ha. Ha, 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 ha. One of the nurses tells me she's stable. <clears throat> that I can go back to the apartment and shower and rest a little. I do shower. Long, hot. I hang on to that bar that she made them install when she moved in, and I lower myself into the tub. I sit and sob, really let it go. I force it like puking until I really am almost gagging. I sleep and wake and go back to the hospital. Morning people coming to work, others checking out. Shift change. Something very alive about all this. I want to hug them for all this bustle. In her room, Sheila tosses and turns, opens her eyes and looks around but can't see me. Can't see this world anymore. Zombified. Her gaze like nothing I've ever seen, mostly just reflex. 
She was always so present, direct. Look at me when I'm talking to you, Jamie. Now she's all horizon, far away. She scratches and scratches her arms, her belly. Then she turns suddenly stronger, turns and looks right at me out of nowhere, says, itch, itch, itch. Almost annoyed, but resolved, an almost comic, what can you do, statement. She lies back down, closes her eyes, scratches and tosses and turns. The pamphlet told me about this restlessness near the end. I tell Donna Reed. She ups the morphine. Mom stops tossing and scratching. Donna Reed turns to tell me something. Then she doesn't. Knows that I know. That Sheila probably won't be tossing anymore. That she's really not here anymore. Nothing more to worry about. No more scribbling. No more itching. Itch, itch, itch. Famous last words. First, the old woman with the big, <clears throat> weepy family was gone. Then, just today, the younger woman, middle-aged at best, heavy-set, who would cry out undecipherable sounds for hours to whichever loved one was at her bedside or out in the hall. I could only see her through a crack in the door as I paced the halls. Her people scowled at me as if I didn't belong there. But I come this morning and they're the ones who have no place here anymore. I'll be staying from now till the end. Getting so close. I can't miss her going. Can't bear to let her go alone. Not to see her go. Not to see her off. Need to see it to believe it. She was dying and death itself. To accept it, a boy can dream. I call Anya, tell her to come in the morning. Morning comes and here she is, so good. Young woman, those arms so warm with blood. Alive, her lovely, loving, alive face, so warm. It's midday, nothing changes, but it's coming, coming. Donna Reed adjusts my mom on the bed, ups the morphine again, for comfort, always for comfort. Sheila moves around now a little, <clears throat> but hardly at all. Is a mind working in there, even to dream, or just a brain sending signals to a body pumping stuff around for a last little while? Donna leaves, shutting the door behind her, and soon my mother's breathing starts to slow. Five seconds, ten, twenty between breaths. The inhales are gasps. The exhales define expiration. We think it's over. Then one more. Then one more. Shorter and farther apart. Something still fighting. Then nothing for a long time. 30 seconds. A minute. 90 seconds. Nothing. Anya and I cry. We hold each other. I take my dead mother's picture. I don't know why. She would get it. She always got it. Got me. We say goodbye to someone who isn't there. 
Soon they will take her away. Unbearable. I keep kissing her right at the bridge of her forehead and nose. The horrible, horrible relief. Cold little bones. Done. The Meat for Tea cast is produced by Elizabeth McDuffie and Meat for Tea, The Valley Review. Mixed by Mark Allen Miller at Zone Lab, East Hampton, Massachusetts. Visit Meat for Tea at www.meatfortea.com. Please consider going to anchor.fm to make a contribution through our contribution page. You can reach us through meatforteacast at gmail.com, or you can leave a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash meatforteacast. We welcome suggestions for contents for the Meat for Tea cast. If you've attended a Meat for Tea Cirque and want to hear from one of the bands or one of the spoken word contributors, please let us know. All portions are copyright Meat for Tea and their respective holders. Vote for Meat for Tea on your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at Elizabeth, Meat for Tea on Instagram and on the Meat for Tea and Meat for Tea cast Facebook pages. Meat for Tea is available everywhere you get your favorite podcast.